Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed Local Provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor, security sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIP. Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house and giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner and an investment advisor with over 20 years experience providing financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis. I'm a Dave Ramsey local provider. I also have an MBA in finance and have been helping corporations and individuals with planning for over 20 years. We're excited to have you listen to us today on our weekly radio show. We are right here every Saturday like today from 9 to 10 a.m. Yeah, you can also go to our website, moneymd.net. We have a link in the top right-hand corner. You can click that. You can stream us uh, wherever you're hanging out this Saturday morning. You can uh, also catch us on the dial at 1230 a.m. We also have a link on the right-hand side. It's it's for the podcast. So if you miss the Money Doctors, you can click this link. It'll take you to a, another website that has all of the, the shows, and they're actually broken out and, and categorized as well. Well. Yeah, listen, listed by topic, mm-hmm. and so you can browse through topics there, find the one you like, and, and you know, tune in. No excuse for not listening to the Money Doctors here this morning, and we're glad to have you with us today. We have an exciting show, as usual, um, and we have some very interesting stuff here. You know, I mean, one is, John, you know, the average investor is a terrible investor. Mm-hmm. That's what the data says. Unfortunately, that's what the data says. So we're going to dig into that a little bit. It's a great article, a couple articles here. We pulled this from, and, you know, the data is not good, but we're going to tell you the solution to being a terrible investor. That's right. We've, we've got the answer. We do. The things not to do. And then another um, topic is going to be the Dow. I don't know if you realize it, but the uh, Dow's over 18,000 again. Shazam. Shazam. Yeah. Who knew? amazing. Who knew? I mean, that uh, fast. I tell you, what, well, there's been some interesting, uh, you know, activities this year in the stock market. January was obviously rough. Then you had the Brexit vote, which um, certainly rocked the markets for a couple of days. But we're going to dive into this really good perspective and kind of gives you some insight into um, how not to be a terrible investor. Yeah, it's amazing how fast things change. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we're sitting here talking about new highs, and just a few months ago. Even a month or two ago, we were talking about, you know, people thinking things were going to get a lot worse. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It does change very quickly sometimes. And we also get a lot of questions, Steve, on um, presidential elections. I don't know if you – did you know yes. that there's a – you know, some things I, going on in the I've, media. I've heard that. You know, there's something every time I try to turn on to my favorite show at night. Now there's like a, a convention. Convention, or something going yeah. On. It's some just, guy named Trump and uh, yeah, and somebody named Hillary. Hillary, I don't yeah. Know. It's just going on and on and on. You know, I'm, I'm kind of tired of it already. What's it going to do to the stock market? Well, that's a good question, and we're going to answer that. We are going to answer that. We're going to look back at history a little bit and give you some some tips of things to think about this presidential election year. Yeah, that's going to be a good one. All right, but we're going to start off here, though, with the financial fact of the week. Yeah, this comes from the uh, FDIC, and uh, interesting time, Steve. You know, back in 2008, 2009, um, you know, the financial systems were in chaos. There were a lot of issues with banks. And, yep. um, you know, if you look back at history a little bit, it can kind of put things in perspective a little bit. Um, as of um, the end of 
April um, of this year. There had only been one bank that had failed um, and required a, a, a bailout from the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. If you look back in 2010, there had been 50 banks um, in the same time frame that had failed um, that had to be rescued. So much different times financially, And which is, yep. if you think about it, now the focus on the markets are earnings versus some calamity in the financial you know systems. Yeah, that's right. I actually have an update to this. I went on the website this morning, the FDIC's website, mm-hmm. and looked, and as of today, there have been three banks, three banks that okay. have, have failed this year. Um, but still, that is very, very low. That's the lowest since 2007, mm-hmm. in fact. You know, normally there's there's something in the teens, but we're on track for the, have the lowest year since 2007. So, you know, the economy, the financial world really has turned around quite a bit. Mm-hmm. I mean, banks are starting to make a little bit of money. If they raise interest rates, banks probably will do very, very well because they, they tend to do well in higher interest rate environments. So, But that's a very interesting fact of the week, no doubt. All right, that leads up to our first topic here, and that is why you are a terrible investor. <laughs> you know, we hate to call you terrible out there, but if you're the average investor, it is true. Average investor is terrible, according to the latest study by the quantitative invest in quantitative analysis of investor behavior QAIB is what we call it that was released this year by Dalbar Associates they release this study every year they update it and it was released back I'd say in March this year for 2015 going back and they look back at the last 20 years and you know I know you think you're better than average but Probably not according to this study, because looking back over the last 20 years, the average investor in the stock market in mutual funds made 4.7%, while the S&P 500 returned 8.2%. Ouch. Ouch. Yeah, that's right. 3.5% short, almost just over half Mm -hmm. of what the stock market made. That means the average Joe out there absolutely stinks at investing. (laughs) You know, I mean, but don't feel too bad. I mean, because so do most professionals, according to the other studies out there. According to a New York Times article, 99.4% of fund managers showed no evidence of stock picking skill. And the 0.6%, of 1% that did outperform the index, they were statistically indistinguishable from zero. Yeah, and those study. and those point six, I mean, you know, they, they rotate, they change, they don't have exactly. the ability to do it consistently over time. So That's exactly right. And, and you know, unfortunately it's no better for fixed income investors. <clears throat> In fact they fared they fared even worse, um, returning only a half percent while the Barclays US aggregate bond index returned 5.3 percent over the last 20 years so that was even worse that was horrible (laughs) you know of course i mean we haven't seen these kind of returns in a while in stocks or in bonds and you know so that but that's the reason why you can't afford to fall short when the stock market does deliver good results but yet most investors, they fall far short over time. So this is very alarming. Yeah, it really is, Steve. This is a great, great topic because we see this a lot. And um, so the question is, is why do investors fall short of the market return over time? I mean, the answer really lies in our lack of patience and also discipline. I mean, most investors are moving in and out of the market far too often and at the wrong times. And a lot of people think they can time the market, but it just can't be done. Uh, Another issue that we see uh, in this data is... um, 
um, you know, is people trying to pick individual stocks, which is why the worst inve- investing counsel you'll likely ever receive is that you should try to pick good stocks and sell bad ones. I mean, think about that. I mean, sounds easy. Go out and buy some good ones and sell the losers. Yeah. You know, you can't. There's just not. There's so many investors, so many analysts out there that all the information is is baked into the um, into the process. So, you know, you you may get this advice from um, you know some investment advisors, uh, friends, colleagues. You may listen to CNBC, the investment media. You, you should ignore it. Trying to buy and sell individual stocks and trying to time the market is one of the reasons why you're a ter- terrible investor. That's exactly right. You know, since the inve- since the dawn of investment time. The few great stock pickers and market timers out there, they've been revered. Um, even most novices can proudly, you know, recite picks that they've uh, produced, mountainous returns. You know, somebody can say they bought Google at 85 or some price like that you might remember. But unfortunately, what is smart or lucky on occasion often proves dumb over time. And in the end, most stock pickers do worse than if they had never tried to pick stocks at all. Despite snagging the occasional tin bagger, for example, even professional mutual fund stock pickers still have depressingly poor odds of beating the market once their losers and the cost are taken into account. So why is stock picking so hard? Well, consider some of these facts from a recent study. 64% of stocks underperformed the index for the 25 years ending in 2007, according to the study, 64%, so well over mm-hmm. half, 39% of stocks lost money. So, wow. you know, over a third lost money altogether, didn't make anything. And 19% lost <clears throat> 75% of their value over that 25 years. So that's almost a fifth that lost 75% of their value. Only 25% of stocks were responsible for all the positive returns over that period. 25%, only a fourth. They they got accounted for all the positive results. Small percentage. Very small. So, I mean, that's truly an amazing fact if you think about that. That means if you didn't get your share of that fourth of the stock market that made all the positive returns, you're hosed. I mean, those kinds of statistics make stock picking a very dangerous game. So if you pursue a stock picking strategy, you are almost certain to lag the market. That's really what this means. Yeah, you know, the problem for investors, Steve, is that even even though stock picking usually hurts the returns, it's for some people it's interesting and it's fun. And if you ever um, if you are ever to wean yourself off of this bad habit, you know, the first step is to understand why it's so rarely successful. And we just we're kind of giving you some stats here, but the short answer is that the overall market provides the investment returns, not particular stock picks. So most stock pickers get credit for gains. They came merely from being invested in stocks, you know, from the get-go. So, you know, the second thing is, is competition among stock pickers is so intense that it's really difficult for any one competitor to get a consistent edge. I mean, there are thousands of people that are picking stocks and analyzing stocks, and to think that you have the right answer is, is that's not, not a good strategy. That's right. And the third one, John, is although some stocks do beat the market before cost, all thing else all else being equal, you have about a third of a chance of, of beating the market before cost, but it's much harder after cost. Even if you pick stocks well enough to boost your pre-cost return by a couple of points, the expenses that you rack up along the way with research, trading spreads, taxes, etc., 
they will almost always consume all the excess gains from your stock picking. So, all right, we'll continue this discussion when we come back from the break. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net or give us a call, 706-739-0725. You're listening to MoneyMD. We'll be right back after these messages. Stay with us. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey local provider. And we are going to continue our discussion before the break here about why you are a terrible investor. <laughs> and all of us are individually, John. Mm-hmm. If we're trying to pick stocks or time the market, as most people are trying to do, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. The research has overwhelmingly shown that the average investor really is terrible um, when it comes to that. In fact, I mean, this this study we looked at, the uh, quantitative analysis of investor behavior that was released this year, shows that the average investor falls 3.5% short of a stock market return when they're investing in stock mutual funds. And it's even worse for fixed income investments. It's like over 5%, around 5%, they fall short of the market. So, you know, the, the question you have to ask yourself is why is that? You know, why do people fall short? And we've been talking a little bit about that. Um, first of all, I mean, picking stocks is hard. Mm-hmm. It is just hard. I mean, there's only 25% of stocks in one of the studies we looked at that that gave all of the positive return of the stock market over a 25-year period. Yeah. Only 25%, only a fourth. So if you didn't get your share of that fourth, you would fall short of the market. So that's very, very difficult. And that's another reason why professionals can't do it, you know, why mutual funds can't do it. And they change unexpectedly. They change very, very quickly. And so... You know, we're just we're just looking at um, some of the reasons why that is true, and you know, most stock pickers believe that they are among the tiny major- minority of investors who can beat the market after cost. And for inspiration and encouragement, they point to legends like Warren Buffett and Benjamin Graham, some of the greats that have, you know, have been successful over time. You know, but what such investors often don't know is that even Buffett has said the best strategy for investors is to buy a low-cost index mutual fund, you know, and that the great Benjamin Graham eventually changed his mind about the wisdom of traditional stock picking. You know, Graham, you may remember or you may know, is considered one of the greatest stock pickers of all time. He's the man who, back in the 30s and 40s, wrote two classics on the intelligent investing and whose security analysis techniques are still taught in most investment classes today. Yeah, but back in in 1976, shortly before his death, Graham told the Journal of Finance the following. He said, you know, I'm no longer an advocate of this elaborate techniques of security analysis in order to find that superior value um, in the markets. He said this was a rewarding activity, say, 40 years ago, um, when the Bible of fundamental analysis, um, there was a guy named uh, Dodd as well, so Graham and Dodd came out with security analysis. It was a book that was first published, but that situation has changed, he 
said. He said, I doubt whether such extensive efforts will generate sufficiently superior selections today to justify the call. So, <clears throat> Steve, he was, uh, you know, uh, like you said, a legend back in the 30s and 40s, wrote a book. That's right. And then he came to realize as he went through time that, you know, this is just not a valid strategy. And, you know, when you look at what Graham was talking about, what did he mean by the saying the situation had changed? And uh, why did he conclude almost four decades ago that stock picking practices that had defined, you know, intelligent investing in the 1930s were, you know, no longer worthwhile? Something changed that he was talking about. Yeah. So let's talk about what changed over the last eight decades since Graham wrote, you know, security analysis, the stock market. One of the things, though, the first one is the stock market has gone from being a playground for amateurs to what they call a battlefield dominated by full-time professionals. I mean, one result is that pricing errors that once might have gone unnoticed for months back in Graham's day are now discovered and they're exploited instantaneously by computer programs, as a matter of fact. Mm -hmm. And second, you know, the amount of information available about the most obscure stock today, that dwarfs what was available even about the bellwether blue chip stocks back a half century ago. And that makes it harder to dig up information that other investors don't know. Um, the moment the information is released, moreover, I mean, it's dissected, it's discussed, it's debated by thousands of analysts until most reasonable conclusions that can be drawn about the information has been is incorporated in today's prices. Today's technology allows even part-time investors to screen thousands of stocks in dozens of markets in, in the time it would have taken the Graham-era analyst to compute even the net current assets of a single company. So yeah. it's really amazing how it's changed. Yeah, the data is at people's fingertips, um, which is good and bad. But it, there's the deals out there just aren't, aren't there like they were back in the 30s and 40s. And the third reason um, that stock picking doesn't work like it did in Graham's day is that inside information that used to be quite valuable is now illegal to trade on. And, um, you know, finally, the establishment of research centers, such as the Center for Research and Security Prices, has allowed allowed analysts to study the markets and also investing in ways that um, that Graham could only have dreamed of, and in doing so, uh, to assemble a body of knowledge that makes much of the investment wisdom of the early early 20th century seem really primitive and um, unscientific. Um, so, you know, he realized as you got even into the 70s, you know, <laughs> we're a long long way past the 70s, that back in the 70s, his strategies were not would not work. They didn't work anymore. That's right. Yeah, I mean, the stock picking mystique is so deeply entrenched in our financial culture that, you know, it kind of feels like heresy to even suggest that on balance it's a dumb idea. But, you know, the facts are clear. However, for the vast majority of investors, including professionals, stock picking efforts, they waste both time and money, and it just doesn't work. In short, I mean, stock picking is hazardous to your wealth. Mm -hmm. It really is. So what is the average investor to do to achieve a decent return? The answer is to follow the proven approach of diversification into many different asset classes and then rebalance that allocation. You know, rebalance trade back to that allocation on occasion. This is the strategy of investing in asset classes that's been proven to deliver higher returns and has been developed over 20 years through modern portfolio theory. Um, you might 
you need to weight your asset classes toward those that have been shown to give higher returns over time. That means using mutual funds that are diversified in asset classes like small stocks, value stocks, high profitability stocks. These are the dimensions of high return that have been proven by academic research over time. So if you follow this discipline approach to investing, history shows that you're likely to have lower risk and a more consistent return than any stock picking or market timing strategy that has failed the average investor. So So, that's really the answer. So you say when the market goes down, I should just... Sit there and have discipline. You should rebalance, John. Rebalance. You sell a little high, buy a little low. Yeah. So buy, buy more of what's low. If you listen to a lot of the, the uh, educational pundits out there, the Dave Ramsey's, Susie Orman's, um, Clark Howard's, Buffett, you know, the money yeah. doctors, um, you know, we talk about diversification and, and, and stay in the course, have a plan. Because we, we see the data. We all look at these same studies, and we see that people are trying to time the market in and out and trying to pick stocks. It doesn't work over the long term. And um, there's a better way of doing it that uh, has been has been shown to work pretty well over time. Um, so diversify. That's it. Diversify. Yeah, I know it's not exciting, but that's the answer to why you're a terrible investor. You know, just don't do it. So, all right. That leads us up here to the question of the week. Yeah, this question is, uh, <laughs> excuse me, I'm going to be moving in a couple of years, um, but I really want to redo my kitchen. Should I do it? And, um, you know, this is always a kind yeah, of a sensitive topic. Um, you know, people want to, you know, put some money into their house. It depends on what financial situation you're in. If you have, you know, $100,000 sitting in cash and you want to take thirty out to go do your kitchen, by all means, go do it. You're likely not going to get that money out when you sell it. Um, Probably you, not. Usually when, you know, the way I approach this, and I'm sure we're similar on this, um, Steve, is that when you when you put money into the house, it, it's it's still an asset, but it becomes illiquid. And so you don't exactly. have access to it anymore. So if you're going to move in, in two to three years, I mean, I generally recommend, hold, <coughs> excuse me, hold on to the cash, um, you know, wait until, you know, you go into your new house and put that cash towards something else. But I, I generally, I don't think people ought to put a lot of money in to try to sell the house because you're not going to get that money back. That's right. Unless you do a lot of the work yourself, you're not likely to get it at back. I mean, redoing a kitchen can cost, you know, it can cost $50,000. Sure. Um, so you've you got to be real careful if you're going to do that. You know, if you do some of the work yourself and you just keep it simple and affordable, maybe. You yeah. Know, you, might get, you might get some of your money back. Um, you know, but putting new cabinets, that'd have to be out of the question if you're selling in a couple of years. That would be expensive. You know, maybe just refinish the ones you have. Um, you know, you got to stick to some simple things if you're going to redo your kitchen. If you're planning to get out of it, you know, you got to just you got to stick to, you know, fixtures, countertops, hardware, tile, but don't, you know, granite. New cabinets, you'd have to forget that. Yeah. That'd be my suggestion. And I think you make a good point. If you can do some of the work yourself, by all means, that that will certainly help um, the process. But uh, think through that one carefully. We get that question quite quite often. Yeah, we do. We do. That's a great question. Okay, that leads up to our break here. But if you have questions for us, you can email us at info at moneymd.net or give us a call. Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. You're listening to MoneyMD. We'll be right back at these messages. Stay with us. (laughs) 
Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey local provider. And we are going to lead off our next segment here with a new topic, and that is the Dow and new highs, 18,000. Yeah, John, who knew? Bumping right along. Who knew that? I mean, yeah, it seems like just yesterday we were talking about you know, is are we headed back into another recession? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, big dip in the market, another correction. I mean, things change fast. Yeah, this this article is from uh, Morningstar from a gentleman named John uh, Reichenthaler, and um, pretty interesting take on this. Um, you know, he, he kind of titles the subtitle is "Dark Clouds, No Rain." And if you remember, man, January started off the first week of the year was the worst week ever in the stock market. Yeah, and that was a headline. I mean, and it was down, you know, five to to seven percent that first week, and um, you know, it was. It was challenging. I know you probably got a couple phone calls like I did. Sure, <clears throat> we ended up having a uh, a meeting, um, you know, with with clients talking talking about the uh, the situation. But you know, the S and P five hundred dropped five um, percent um, plus in January. Some of the other indexes were down like ten percent, and um, you know that was after declining four of the previous six months. A so very very challenging way to start the year not very positive at all and commodity prices were eroding um the imf index of primary commodity prices reached its lower lowest level in more than a decade and steve that was even below the um the 2008 number so a lot of negative signs out there yeah. and wow yeah, given how accurately the plunging commodity prices um had kind of foreshadowed the 2008 stock market drop um, you know, a lot of people out there, Steve, were saying we're due for a recession. And yep. actually, one gentleman from uh, the University of Virginia professor there uh, said that during his economic forecast, he said, we're due. And um, another person wrote, you know, if there's a recession, this is how it's going to happen. And that was a guy from the New York Times. And another headline was, is the economy headed for another recession? That was the U.S. News and World Report. And um, Reuters, Reuters um, said, with recession lights amber, brittle markets are vulnerable to all shocks. So if you look at the headlines, and we've talked about this before, a lot of people start making decisions based on those headlines, right? Yeah, and the headlines are just following the, the, the the emotions of the moment. Yeah, the emotions of the writer. That's exactly <laughs> right. Know? Yeah, it has no basis really in, in facts in most cases. But, yeah, six months later, commodity prices have recovered. The, the developed economies are chugging along. Stocks are up. You know, the next downturn certainly will arrive because the next downturn will always arrive. But the sell-off will occur at a different time and for different reasons than any forecasters had expected. Yeah, nobody can predict predict this. They can't predict it. That's the key here. Yeah, I mean, it all seems obvious in hindsight, doesn't it? I mean, you know, how could we not have seen the impeding stock market crash of 2008? Everybody knew real estate was too high and it was headed for a crash, right? Well, not really, you know. And then seven years into the economic expansion when demand was was waning um it just seemed obvious but the task is anything but simple you know this winter the the u.s was once again seven years into an economic expansion with demand for commodities waning 
you know, the same parent pitcher, but we got a very different result. Yeah, and a lot of people probably got burned, right? I I'm mean, sure. the, the markets were down through February, and they came back up and recovered everything by the end of April. So, yeah. you know, the problem with calling bear markets or recessions, for that matter, is that each one is different. I mean, if you look at the 1987 crash, that came out of nowhere, and it, it not only wasn't because of a slowing economy, but um, it did signal some problems to come in the future, but it just happened. In 1990, um, there were some, uh, you know, uh, the Iraq evasion of Kuwait, um, spiking oil prices was a trigger. The markets were down uh, almost before anyone knew, uh, you know, the technology sell-off. I mean, that happened extremely quickly. That was from 2000 to 2002. Um, that was a totally different animal altogether. You had, you know, 9-11 in the middle of that as well. So, you know, it's, it's it was predictable in a sense as, as speculation was rampant, but no one could have anticipated it five years earlier. Um, so... You know, trying to predict this, we the first discussion we had about terrible investor. One reason why people are terrible is they look at these headlines. That's exactly right. Right. So, don't read the headlines because these people don't know what they're talking about. Somebody's going to get it right, but most people get it wrong. So, you know, this um, this gentleman goes on to say, um, you know, that that this bull market is one of the most hated in in history, and you know, the current upturn, uh, the Wall Street Journal recently told us, is the most hated bull market on record. And previously, CNBC, the Financial Times, Forbes, Fox, Bloomberg, CNN, a whole host of um, you know. Financial shows they'd used the same term of most hated, dated back several years, and you know such are bull markets. I mean, this is this is not unusual. Alan Greenspan famously had no use for the irrational exuberance of the 1990s, and before that, in the late 1980s, much of the so-called smart money dismissed the post 1987 rebound as a as a sucker's bet. So I have to say, I mean, I've been in this business over 20 years, and every bull market is hated. You know, the media hates it. Everybody always says there's no reason for stocks to be going up. And that's true. I mean, stocks are a leading economic indicator. They go up before the economy goes up. So you never feel like the stock market deserves to go up. And and the media hates that. Yeah, you're right. And, um, you know, a lot of times, Steve, you know, skepticism about the stock market is a positive sign and indicating that the rally will continue. But that, too, is subject, you know, it's common lore. So, you know, just trying to make your decisions based on this media stuff, presidential elections, don't do it. I mean, be diversified like we've talked about. Have that plan. And, um, you know, a lot of times it's um, people are, are are shorting on stocks. You know, they're, they're making decisions in the market and they're coming out out and they're they're being negative in the process and they're showing headlines and people follow what they say and they make wrong decisions so you know there's a gentleman named uh, jeremy grantham that um you know wasn't real high on technology stocks yeah sometimes sometimes they get the general trend right don't they i mean for example jeremy graham as you mentioned grantham he stumped against technology stocks through the late 90s into the new millennium right up to their demise of course he was a little early on that call i think um, but he wasn't alone. Most hedge fund managers were also kind of negative on the sector before it peaked, and as were some value-oriented mutual fund managers. You know, it would have been difficult indeed, though, to call the market's top by seeking the sign of capitulation that they often point to. You know, and contrar- uh, contrarianism is is fine, you know, in the as an investment principle in general, 
and it makes sense when you're putting new cash to work by sifting through the sectors and they had poor performance, you know, by being a value investor, mm-hmm. as we call it, right? Mm-hmm. Just waiting it for value, you buy things sure. that are kind of out of favor. But the, the problem comes when you're trying to do that in time the market. It is very, very difficult. Um, you know, when you're looking at today's uh, security prices, um, no one really knows when you when you've reached the top. So yeah, you yeah. got to be careful when you're trying to do that. Yeah, and um, you know when you look at investor sentiment, Steve, or, or the market performance numbers to yield a, a you know a, a useful signal for investing, that can be dangerous. I mean, the math of stock investing appears to be really basic. Stocks rise most of the time, and there doesn't seem to be any reliable method for determining when those exceptions will occur. Uh, so the optimal approach that we talk about, and again, the Ramseys and the and the, the Susie Ormans, is to, is to hold, buy and hold mutual funds, be diversified, and hold the same percentage of stocks no matter what the current conditions or current headlines are. So for most people, Steve, that, that means that you're going to have to have some bonds in there because they're more conservative, typically hold their value fairly well, but trying to time the market and figuring out which direction the markets are going to go in is, is not going to be good. So, you know, this this writer goes on to say, um, you know, that unfortunately is not real sexy, right? Saying buy and hold. And, right. um, not exciting. You know, and so that advice is um, is good year in and year out. And, you know, the, that's just the nature of the beast. And so his his take on this is is trying to figure out how to position buy and hold and make it sexy because a lot of times buy and hold is is average and i think we've done that john we've talked about that it's sexy i mean you know getting high dimensions of higher return in the market i mean that that is it is an exciting concept to me particularly if you look at the data Mm -hmm. and you look at the fact that value stocks have outperformed growth stocks and you know there are things that have done well and have and have done it by a great deal have performed several percent higher than the market um so there are ways to them to to get a higher return by weighting your portfolio towards small and value yeah but it, it takes patience and discipline it does. So that's, that's the key. Yeah. And just to wrap up this article, he goes on just talking about, I found this stat interesting. He said, you know, mutual fund managers that own their own shares typically do better than those who don't. That's right. And um, I don't know about you, but, I mean, we invest, you know, in our portfolios. So that's important, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, the, the key is you, you just have to diversify. You have to be patient, be disciplined. And invest for the long term. You know, don't get suckered into to following the emotions of the day. And it's amazing the news media. How I mean, everybody is bombarded with Twitter and and Fox News and CNBC and so forth. And um, the best approach is just turn that off. Yeah, it's loud sometimes. Turn off the noise of the day. Exactly. Good advice. Okay, well, that leads up to our break here. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net, or you can give us a call, 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. 
I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey local provider. And we are going to continue our uh, show here with the prescription of the week. Yes, yeah, it is a pretty cool website out there. It's called Trivago.com, T-R-I-V-A-G-O, and um, okay. went out there and checked it out, and uh, pretty neat. I'm going to start using it. I actually have used it once already, but it is the world's largest hotel search, and basically what it does is it goes out to over 250 booking sites for over a million hotels throughout the world, and it shows you all the deals um, for a location. So I was you know, looking to go down to Hilton Head. That's cool. Um, um, you know, for you know, couple nights um, coming up, and I went out there, and it showed me on a map um, all the different deals. And I'm going to wait a little bit to book it because I'm going to try to get a good deal, kind of last minute. But it'll it'll pull all the sites. So instead of going to all the kayak and you know all the different sites, um, Travelocity and so forth, this will pull them together in one website, and you can see all the deals going on. Is this the one that like pulls them up on top of one another, mm-hmm. like cascades them? It does. It does. Okay, so yeah, I, I have seen that when I pulled Hilton Head, it showed the whole island, and I was interested in a certain segment, you know, section of it. So I had to zoom in, and then it, it showed me there were probably ten to fifteen deals within that certain area. Oh, okay, and it's, it's the last minute deals. This one's looking at last minute deals that are, and it just shows them on a the map. Yeah, you, know, you can put the date in, and my data is out a little bit, but you can use it for last minute as well, which is what I'm going to use it for. Okay. But instead of trying to go to, you know, three or four or five different websites that you're familiar with out there, I mean, Travago.com, it pulls it together. It just makes it simple. It's one location with all the deals um, of the hotels that you're looking for. I'm going to check that out because you know me, John, and vacations you, are one of my favorite you subjects. You do like vacations, don't you? I love vacations. I don't get to take very many. That's probably why I love them so much. But, you know, I, I'm definitely going to check this out. Yeah, Last-minute deals, that's exciting. Yeah, there's. Um, we're going to try to do that. We we typically are planners, so I typically book something well in advance. Um, we're going to take take this uh, beach trip, and we had the dates planned out, and we're just going to – I'm going to wait the day before and see what shows up. Wow, I mean, so, I don't know if Tammy's going to be able to do that, though. I mean, she's she's like, well, she we're likes going to plan way ahead of time. We're going, right? we just don't know where we're staying. Uh, yeah, so we'll have the bags packed. Ooh, that'll be interesting to it see will if be. Tammy I'll, I'll can handle, back, handle yeah. that. Yeah, no, that's, that's that's something me and Kathy would do. We would do a last minute deal, but yeah. I see you guys like wanting to book it like six months in advance. We that's normally cool. do plan out, and I book it, and just you know everything's done. But um, I'll report back when we go through this process. But. Trivago, T-R-I-V-A-G-O dot com. Yeah, I've seen the commercials. That sounds great. That sounds great. Great prescription of the week. Okay, and that leads up to our last topic here, and that is stocks in presidential elections. Ooh. What does history tell us? What does history tell us? We get this question every four years. Absolutely. Absolutely every four years. And, and, you know, it seems so obvious, doesn't it? I mean, just everybody Mm -hmm. says, oh, the stock market, it's... It's an election year. It's going to be a terrible year in the market. I, I hear that every four years. Yeah, it's not not the case. No, no I don't think so. It's, we'll see. For the most part, we'll yeah we'll dive into the details here. So you know, as an investor, you know that past performance is no guarantee of future success. We talk about that all the time. Very very true. And expanding that truth, history has no bearing on the future of Wall Street. So you got to understand those two pieces kind of going into this. That st- said, you know, stock market historians have repeatedly analyzed market behavior in presidential election years and, and what stocks do when different parties holds the reins of power in Washington as well as always of 
interest as well. So, you know, they've noticed some interesting patterns throughout the year, which may or may not prove true for 2016, but it makes it fun to talk about. <laughs> it really does. Right? And I also get the question a lot about which party is better mm-hmm. for the stock market. Oh, my goodness, the market's going to be terrible because yeah. the Democrats might get in or the Republicans. Right. Either way, it, it's, I get that question a lot, too. But, yeah, the question is, do stocks rally you know, through an election cycle every four years. Um, so what what really happens there? I mean, the numbers really point to – they really don't point to any kind of pattern, in fact. I mean, in, in, in price return terms, the S&P 500 has gained an average of 6.1% per year in election years going back to 1948 compared to 8.8% per year. In any given year. So it has performed a little worse in election years. A little worse. But consider the fact we're only talking about a small segment here. Yeah, and 2008 was thrown in there, right? That was down, what, 40%. There you go. 2012 was up, you know, 12 to 15%. So it's a very small sampling here. I mean, we're, we're talking about a dozen data points yeah, here. Right. So it only takes one really bad one to throw it off. Yeah, the index has posted a yearly gain in 76% of election years starting in 1948 um however as opposed to 71 percent in all other years Hmm. so it's actually a little little better a little more positive years there of course you know much of this performance could be chalked up to the macroeconomic factors having nothing to do with presidential races (laughs) i would say all of that which i would say is definitely (laughs) true yeah overall election years have have been decent for blue chips i mean opening a a very wide, wide historical window the dow has averaged nearly a six per, excuse me six percent gain in election years since 1833 and across that same time frame it's averaged a 10 percent gain in year three um, preceding the election years but again going back to 1833 is a long time but there's still minimal data points yeah you're talking you know, about 30 data points yeah it's not a lot so not a lot. Um, blue chips has been pretty good uh, election years have, they've been seen solid advances for small caps i mean the average price return for the russell 2000 is almost 11 percent in election years going back to 1980 with a yearly gain occurring 78 percent of the time so again folks if you're listening to us out there or listening on the podcast don't go make decisions based on this certainly not this yeah. is, uh, interesting data but that's all it is exactly now the other question as i mentioned we we do get is do stocks respond if a particularly party has control of congress well i I hear that question about the white house a lot but this is talking about congress little data from invest tech research will help answer that question invest tech they studied the s&p 500 yearly returns since 1928 and they found that the s&p returned an average of 16.9% in the two years after a presidential election when the White House was and Congress were controlled by the same party. In the two-year stretches after the presidential election when Congress was in control by the party that didn't occupy the White House, the price return of the S&P 500 was 15.6%, which is almost identical mm-hmm. really that's mm-hmm. pretty close yep. when the congress con- uh, when the control of congress was split regardless of who was the president the s&p 500 only returned 5.5 percent <laughs> in those two-year periods interesting wow maybe more so gridlock that's a big difference so that would yeah that would say that gridlock is good mm-hmm. yeah i mean so could could stock markets 
performance actually influence the election? I think there's some uh, validity here. The uh, invest tech analysis seems to draw a correlation, um, however mysterious, between S&P 500 performance and whether the incumbent party retains control of the White House. And there have been 22 presidential presidential elections since 1928 in those 22 years the incumbent party won the white house 86 percent of the time when the s&p 500 advanced during the three months preceding election day and when the s&p lost ground in the three months prior to the election the incumbent party lost the white house 88 percent of the time of course you know there's a lot of other factors steve that um have probably were more considerably influential in these elections um such as you know the presidential approval rating unemployment rate economy and and so forth, but um, you know, three months before the performance has has had a pretty high percentage rate. Yeah, there's an old saying: "It's the economy, stupid." Yeah, that's right. right? I heard that once or twice. <laughs> yeah, we've heard that a time or two. So it really is the economy, I believe. Yeah, the annual returns aside, though, there is a mini cycle that hit stocks in a typical election year. Is there a mini cycle? That's the question. Um, Some analysts insist there is, you know, with the cycle unfolding like this. Stocks gain momentum during the primary season. They rally strongly as the presumptive nominee appears and the party convention occur, and then they go sideways or south in November and December. Um, That's interesting. You know, there might be something to this assertion, you know, at least in terms of the S&P performance. A a fact-set Wall Street Journal analysis shows that in election years starting in 1980, the S&P 500 advanced an average of 4.9% in the period when the presumptive nominee was declared in election day. And after election day, in those nine years, it declined about a half percent on average. But, gee, we're only talking about nine data, nine data yeah. points. One 2008 totally throws this data out the window. Yeah, even yeah, even going back to 1833, which we mentioned a little bit you know, a couple minutes ago, um, that's not statistically enough data points to make any decisions on this. So, you know, it's interesting. The press likes to talk about it. We get a lot of questions from clients and uh, folks in the in the uh, community as well. But uh, don't make your decisions on your, your investments based on presidential elections, Congress. Um, it really boils down to being diversified, having a plan, and and uh, stay stay patient and disciplined. That's exactly right. I tell people all the time, the the, the stock market and the economy are much bigger than any president mm-hmm. or or Congress or administration. Yep. You know, it, it's, it matters more what the economy is doing than it does what's happening in Washington. That's right. Okay. Well, that leads up to our close of this week's edition of Money MD. Tune in next Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m. to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. And do check us out on our website, moneymd.net. Email us your questions. You can email us at info at moneymd.net or give us a call at Richard Young Associates, 706-739-0725. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. Have a good one. Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed local provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor, security sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIP. Let's see.